0: Um, Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. Uh, My name is Ryan. I'm the pastor here and today we celebrate Palm Sunday. Our brothers and sisters around the world today are focusing in on the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem we're kind of looking out into the last week of Jesus' life as we're following him towards the cross. And so symbolically, over this entire evening, we have this cross to remind us of what it is that we're anticipating, what it is that we're looking forward to. And over this past season, we've been doing this series called In Search of the Beloved. that We've been allowing the Gospel of John to recenter us on the story of Jesus, to discover what it looks like when God pursues us and to respond appropriately in our pursuit of God. And last week on Saturday, I was kind of meditating and saying, Lord, what exactly do you want us to be focusing in on on Palm Sunday? What's the, what's the thing that's going to tie it all together? And I was reminded of this verse in John 13:1. It says this, John knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It was that last phrase I really felt like was what the Lord wants us to focus on tonight and yet he loved us until the very end and so tonight we're going to be looking at three stories from the last few days of Jesus's life before the crucifixion to examine what kind of Lord are we inviting into our lives what does it mean when Jesus is really Messiah for us today how are we called to respond to that and in the even the deeper level what does it mean for us to be the beloved and I think the thing that ties it all together is this. Jesus' faithfulness to his Father breaks open our assumptions and leads us to life eternal. And what we see in the Holy Week the and final, the final stories of Jesus' life is that what begins in triumphal entry today ends in abandonment on Friday. And so the first story we're gonna be looking at is in John chapter 12 with the triumphal entry. And I want you to be listening for this as I'm reading this story. We worship and adore Jesus when we receive him as he really is and so I want you what I want you to do as we've done so many times before is to close your eyes and just to have a posture of openness before the Lord and I'm going to read this story and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to ignite our divine imaginations to to reveal to us something in this story that really makes it land for us to ask God God where, where do you want to put me in this story Where where am I sitting? Where am I standing? How does it feel? How does it smell? And to allow that to speak to the depths of who we are. So John 12, beginning in the 12th verse. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So Jesus, on the outskirts of the city, enters in as the one and true king. But Jesus enters in as a marked man. What we have seen several times before is that the anger in the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish ruling courts, they perceive such threat in the movement that they find in this young radical rabbi and how he's turning people to God in a totally subversive way that calls into question the way that they've been doing it, the way that they understand what God really looks like. And they feel a threat to this, and they've decided we have to put a stop to this. We have to kill him before this thing gets too far. And so Jesus is entering into Jerusalem knowing full well what, in, what is in store for him there, that they intend to kill him, that they intend to quench the revolution. But not only does he enter into this city as a marked man when it comes to the Jewish institutions, but he enters in as a mockery of royalty. He enters in making a mockery of the, of the forces of evil, of the empire. Because you see, in this day, Caesar would enter into a conquered city and people would rush out to meet him as a symbol of how overly excited they were that he was with them. And they would march with him into the city and there would be this huge procession with his governors and his military and the horses and the army and all of this would come in right behind the emperor and he himself would be on this mighty steed clothed in gold and glory. And But Jesus enters in making a mockery of that on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. It becomes this satirical, prophetic act that says the kingdom that's advancing is not the one that you think it is. Because when Jesus enters into our presence, he challenges our religious pride, our institutions that say the way that we've got it down is pretty much the way that it is. Because it actually privileges us and puts us in a place of power. But Jesus, when he enters into our presence, also challenges our political agendas of nationalism. Because if we were to put it in modern terminology, especially in a week like this, we would say, Jesus does not ride to victory on a Sherman tank. Jesus does not ride to victory shooting off tomahawk missiles. Jesus does not use power and authority in the way that we've seen it used by the empires of this world that say strength and power are found in violence. But we find a Jesus that passes right through the middle of that, makes a mockery of it and says, no, there is a new way. There is a kingdom way that breaks open the cycles of violence and leads us into new life. And the people that welcome him in cry out, Hosanna, which was this phrase used in Jewish tradition that means save, rescue us. And it became this greeting of anticipating the Messiah, the King of Israel, who would come and put everything to right. And so many of the people in this crowd, and so many of the disciples were anticipating a Messiah who was going to be a political revolutionary that would stand up to the Roman Empire, cast them off, and reestablish Israel as a sovereign state. And so they shout out Hosanna, but they shout out the King of Israel, because they want a political leader. They want God to march into the midst of their enemies just bringing a bigger stick because that's how we think things get solved in this world. That's how we think power looks. But the amazing thing about this story is that Jesus bursts through our agendas, not to be the king that we think that we want, not to be the king that supports our agendas, but to be the king that we actually need. And I think that's the challenge for you and I in this story of the triumphal entry. Do we praise and worship and adore Jesus with some sort of an agenda because we think that he's just going to give us what we want? Do we find ourselves within the Christian household because we think it's the place of power and of privilege, that it puts us on top of the heap? but it's just one more little human system that gives us a little bit more of a head start over our fellow brothers and sisters? Or do you and I come to Jesus as the Messiah with an open expectation of who he is and what he's going to do? Do you and I stand in the same place as these crowds, shouting Hosanna, saying worship the Lord, And are we really intending to follow that Prince of Peace all the way to wherever he leads us? Because peace is not a destination. Peace is the journey itself. And you and I belong to a kingdom that stands in the face of empirical notions of power and violence and says, no, there's another way. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And there's so much energy There's so much uh, old reference in this portion of scripture and and one of the references that it brings is from Psalm 118. And what the Jewish people would do even today in worship is they would use those Psalms as this this declaration, this prophetic call and response, and that's how they worship. And so I want us to use the words of Psalm 118 as another declaration that we perceive Jesus the Messiah coming into our city, coming into our presence, but we have an open-handed understanding of who he is. We have an open-handed expectation that we're going to allow him to be who he really is and to allow him to do what he's really going to do. And so when you came in, you were given a palm, yet another one of these messianic symbols of making a way for the king. And after we, after we uh, chant this psalm together, I'm gonna to invite you to bring those palms and to lay them down underneath this cross as a symbol of your worship and adoration that you're willing to receive him as he really is so let's, we're going to res- read this responsively by half verse it'll be on the screen next to us and I want you to respond not in a kind of rote way like you did when you were in 11th grade English class and you had to stand up and read the scarlet letter I want you to sing it from your gut I want you to get it from that deep place within you that as you pronounce this you're pronouncing it over everybody else in this room that you're declaring what is real and true about our God. And perhaps you're even, you're pronouncing it to your own soul. You're causing your own soul to get back in alignment, to get back into the reality of what this moment bears for us. So let's recite Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected. The Lord has done this. The Lord has done it this very day. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession. We have not always received him as the king we truly need. Welcome you to come to the center. Oh, we sing to you, God. So worthy, Lord. So worthy, yeah. Yeah, Lord, we sing to you, God. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We lift you up, God. You're worthy today. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a seat. Go ahead, accept it. We're going to get political tonight. Talking about a kingdom. So in that first story, in the triumphal entry, we're looking at how is it that we worship and adore Jesus? Do we receive him as the Messiah he really is? Or do we come to him and worship because we have some sort of an agenda? Because he's supposed to fit our expectations of what we think that we need. In this next story, we're going to be looking at Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And Peter's very uh, difficult way of receiving this from the Messiah. And I want us to examine this. In humility, we let Jesus love and serve us so that we might learn to love and serve one another. We let Jesus love and serve us so that we might learn how to love and serve one another. We're gonna be looking at John chapter 13, verse three. And again, I just invite you to close your eyes, to allow the Lord to anoint your divine imagination, to put you into this story, to see what it is that he might want to show you personally. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. You will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not everyone was clean. In humility, we let Jesus love and serve us so that we might learn to love and serve one another. I love how John starts out this passage with this beautiful phrase that Jesus had come from God and was returning to God. I love in the biblical narrative how we start in the very first chapter of the very first book with this word El or Elohim, and it doesn't carry a whole lot of character to it. It just means God. But by the time that we arrive at the end of the story, when we read 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, these letters that had been written from the community that John establishes in southern Turkey, we find this beautiful phrase God is love. That's the climactic moment. This is the revelation that God is love and that God looks like Jesus and Jesus looks like God. We didn't always know that. The Old Testament is these interactions with God and humanity stumbling through the dark trying to figure out what God is really like. And through the prophets, And through the Torah, God is giving these signposts pointing into what his character really is. But Jesus comes to reveal to us, to give us the full revelation of what God is really like. And we can even say with this passage, if if God is love, then Jesus is coming from love and is returning to love. Later on in Revelation, John says that Jesus is the Aleph. And the Tav, or the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That Jesus knows who his source is. He knows where he comes from. But he also has a destination. He knows where he's headed. And that middle piece is him beckoning us into relationship with God right now. I think we stand on yet another week in not only our culture but in world culture where so many of us feel afraid. Where so many of us have anxiety because we read the newspapers and we see what's going on in the world and we feel disoriented. We don't know where to ground our confidence. And we're so overwhelmed by fear and anxiety That we stop thinking rationally. That we give over power to all of these other narratives in the world that tell us how we're supposed to respond to the world as it really is today. And we find ourselves yet more disoriented and discombobulated. But Jesus gives us that foundation that we're coming from love and we're headed to love. That we come from God and we are headed back to God and that he has come to lead us into a kind of relationship that gives us grounding. But Jesus doesn't come to demonstrate what God looks like, like I said, with an even bigger stick. God doesn't burst into the scene and use even more violence in order to put the world to right. That's the way man chooses to solve problems. But it says here that when Jesus, knowing that he comes from God and he heads to God, his response to that is to strip down naked in front of his disciples, to kneel before them and to wash their feet. Paul says in Philippians that Jesus took, though he considered equality with God nothing to be taken advantage of, made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, making himself less human. Do you realize that we have a God that submits himself to his own creation? And we don't know how to understand that kind of power and authority because we're so used to seeing it demonstrated in quite a different way in the world around us. We're so used to acting out in what we think is power based on our own human and sinful nature. But Jesus demonstrates the truth of God, not through violence and power, but through love and humility. When Jesus is Lord, power and authority look like love and service. Power and authority look like love and service. Many of these disciples, just like those in the crowd, are looking for a Messiah. But they're looking for a conquering Messiah who will come in and give them a conquering kingdom. They're looking for a political revolutionary who will come in and cast off the offensive arm of the Roman Empire and to reestablish Israel as a sovereign state. And what they're looking for in this Messiah, this king, this God incarnate, is pretty much what they see typified in Caesar in their religious leaders, in their governmental leaders. Someone that just comes in with even more power and authority. And so it's no wonder then that Peter at first rejects this act of Jesus that demonstrates what God is really like. It's this lack of humility in Peter that prevents him from being able to receive the gift of Jesus as he really is. This lack of humility. Maybe we can also call it pride. The author Suzanne Stabil says, pride is the inability and unwillingness to acknowledge one's own needs while tending to others. I love this definition. Let me read it for you one more time. Pride is the inability and unwillingness to acknowledge one's own needs while tending to others. Pride has Peter in this situation where he cannot accept the gift of Jesus, where he cannot lay aside his agenda, his understanding of what Messiah is supposed to be. And he actually uses that agenda as a weapon to hold Jesus at arm's length. And in doing so, Peter misses the symbolic gesture of Jesus. And then when Jesus challenges this assumption in Peter, he kind of goes the other way with it. He says, well, not just my hands, but then my head and and the rest of my body, you should wash all of me. And Jesus says, slow down. How many times has the Lord said that to you? Slow down down. You're still missing it. And we have that tendency in our own lives to go back and forth. We've seen this so many times in the story of Jesus already in the Gospel of John. Consider Martha, whom we looked at just a couple weeks ago. That as Jesus enters into her family home to teach, she's so busy creating a hospitable space that she misses the presence of Messiah right in front of her. And Jesus has to challenge her to come out of that thing, to recognize within herself this very specific version of pride that's preventing her from recognizing her own need for a Messiah. And I align myself with that all too easily. As a pastor, it is one of the most difficult questions for me when someone comes to me and says, how do you feel? What do you need? What do you want right now? And I spend so much time asking that question from other people that nine times out of ten, I can't answer it. And I have to recognize in my own life that's its own twisted version of pride that keeps me from even knowing what it is that I really want. Do you realize that there's such a fine line between being Christ-like and having a Messiah complex? Such a fine line between being Christ-like and being humble and able to receive the gift of Jesus and and having a Messiah complex where we actually put ourselves in the place of Jesus. Maybe you've heard those testimonies before, maybe you, you yourself tell this story, and, it, and your, your testimony kind of summed up goes, yes, I needed Jesus once, but I'm fine now. Oh yeah, used to be in a motorcycle gang, used to do drugs, used to kick puppies, did all these crazy things, I had a terrible life, and then I met Jesus, and look at me now, how many of you have gone to a conference where that was the narrative nobody just me okay I was in high school in the nineties we had lots of stories like that the puppies threw you off it's real nobody's talking about it but it is a real issue in this country but we have these these stories because of the American dream that get boiled down to, yes, I needed Jesus once when I was a mess, but now I'm awesome. And now I'm winning all the time. And we play into that illusion of independence. We play into that illusion of success and victory, and before long, we start to make it on our own terms. And we find ourselves stuck in that same place as Martha. Martha. Struggling from a sense of pride where we're so busy going around and doing things for other people that we we do not recognize that we are the needy ones. That we need to come to Jesus and receive the gift of who he truly is. And then Peter, you know, he makes this flip-flop and then he overcompensates and we found that story in the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus is performing these miracles among the people and they keep coming to him and saying, yes, we want to make you king. Can you just do one more trick for us? Can you just give us a little bit more? And they're very happy to anoint him as king, but they want him to be a king that fits their agenda. They want him to be a king that fits their expectations of what the kingdom's supposed to look like. They're expecting some sort of divine ATM that'll give them whatever they need whenever they need it. And they try to take too much from Jesus. In our pride, we so often reduce who Jesus is because he only is there to suit our agenda and our need. But whether we find ourselves in that place of rejecting Jesus as Messiah because we can take care of ourselves and we're here to help everyone else, or we find ourselves we're actually taking advantage of him and trying to take more from him than he's offering, we're still stuck in that same place of pride. Pride is the lack of self-awareness that breeds this illusion of independence. Pride is a lack of self-awareness that I cannot ask, answer that question. What do I really need right now? What do I really desire? How am I receiving the gift of Jesus with humble and open hands? And Jesus continues in verse 12. When he finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I love that Jesus says, I've come to show you an example. Because if Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Tav, the first and the last, if Jesus is coming from God, coming from love, and returning to God, returning to love, then that middle bit, that's about us. That's our part in the story. But in that disorientation that you and I feel like, the terror that we feel like we're on the brink of World War III, when we feel like society around us is crumbling, when we look at our own lives and the lives of our friends and family, sometimes it feels like nothing's working out and we don't have anything to stand on. We have to turn to Jesus who comes from God, comes from love, and returns to God, returns to love, and allow his story to be the grounding in which we find our being. Jesus' story gives you and I this alternative narrative from the things that we've been swallowing up from the culture around us, trying to tell us who we are, trying to sell us these quick and easy solutions to make life a little less painful. The story of Jesus grounds us and gives us that beginning and that end that we so desperately desire. And when that happens for you and I, then we are allowed to begin to allow his his power and authority to flow through us in the way that we serve one another and in the way that we serve this world. Through our hearts and hands, we reveal to others what God is really like, and we lead one another into relationship with him. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, exploring this idea of belovedness. That we are the beloved of God and he is our beloved. And that we are pursuing one another. I hope that you're all recognizing that this journey of belovedness becomes so much about you and I getting out of our own way. About us killing our ego. About killing the self that's guided by fear. So that we can learn to love other people well. Because when you and I die to self, we become who we were truly created to be in the image of God. And then your story, your personality, your gifts, the place God has put you in, the time God has appointed you to, All of those things conspire to be your calling, the way in which you uniquely project the heart of God into a world that desperately needs to understand and an alternative and different reality, a different narrative, a different story. And that journey of belovedness enables us to fulfill the greatest commandment, to love God with everything that we are and to love one another as he loves us. And that is the only way humanity will be drawn into God's certain and perfect future. We cannot do it on our own. When has pride ever gotten you any farther than you are today? We cannot fix the world through bigger sticks and more violent solutions because it only contributes to the cycles that keep us enslaved. We need another way. We need to allow our stories in humility to be rooted in the story of Jesus and allow him to transform us, allow him to serve us so that we can be free and be able to serve one another as he's called us to do. So I want to invite you to stand up and we're going to recite another liturgy And then we're going to step into a time of community. But I don't want this to be the normal community time where we kind of you know, put aside all of the religious things. We just shake hands with our friends. But I I want you to walk around the room. I want you to find somebody that you don't know. And I want you to look at them directly in the eyes and see if you can't see the face of Jesus. I want you to take their hand in yours and see if you don't feel the hand of Jesus. Can you let go of your fear self? Can you let go of your ego to reach out and to love somebody else in this room? And so let's pray using this liturgy. We have not always let him serve us. We have not always loved one another as he has loved us. I'm going to bow your heads. Heavenly Father, whose blessed Son came not to be served, but to serve. Bless all who, following in His steps, give themselves to the service of others, that with wisdom, patience, and courage, they may minister in His name to the suffering, the friendless, and the needy. For the love of Him who laid down His life for us, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the holy spirit one god forever and ever amen let's greet one another in the name of jesus this. alright let's move back to our seats let's go ahead and move back to our seats so in the first story we see in Jesus' triumphal entry that these crowds are willing to worship and adore him but only because they have an agenda only because they're expecting Jesus to be the kind of king that they think that they need. And the invitation for you and I is to say, why do we worship him? Do we worship him because we're expecting to get something out of him? Or do we worship him open-handedly in such a way as we're able to receive him as he truly is? And to have this surprise and delight in the way that he operates in our lives and the lives of those around us. And then we looked at the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And the offense of Peter that comes out of this sense of pride to say, no, I can't possibly receive the gift you're giving me. That's not what power looks like. That's not what authority looks like. That's not what God looks like. And Peter in his pride is not able to receive the gift of Jesus. And finally, we're going to be looking at the story of Judas Iscariot at this very same table. And this is what I want us to focus in on. We betray Jesus when we snatch from him with clenched fists. We're faithful to Jesus when we receive from him with open hands. Again, I invite you to close your eyes. Be in a posture of receptivity. And we're going to allow the Spirit again to anoint your divine imagination. And as I'm reading this story... Just give the Lord permission to reveal to you where you are. Where is it that he desires for you to sit and to take all of this in? In John 13, verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then. Dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Judas told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas was in charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. I want to take you back to the very beginning of the story. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3. In this story we find that God creates this incredibly beautiful and good world. That has so much to say about who he is. And then he creates humanity. Humanity. That up to that point, the best demonstration of his character. He says, let us make them in our own image, male and female. And he places them in this good and perfect garden. And Adam and Eve are wanting for nothing. They have everything they could possibly desire. They have full intimacy with God. They have community with one another. They can never go hungry. There'll never be not enough for them. But then in that story, Satan... As the accuser, the snake, comes in and begins to sow fear. And it's a fear of scarcity, a fear of lack. And Satan says to Eve, did God really say that you weren't allowed to eat from that tree? Which is Satan really saying to her, and perhaps saying to us, do you really believe that God's going to provide everything you need? Do you really believe that you have it all? Doesn't it seem a little too good to be true? And Satan deceives Eve into believing that maybe there's not enough. That maybe she and her husband are incomplete. And so what does she do? She reaches out and she takes that which had been forgiven. She snatches the fruit off of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And it's this mix of fear and scarcity and entitlement that allows her to be convinced by the Satan, this spirit of accusation to walk away from God. And I wonder if that fear is not the main motivator in Judas' story as well. One of the things that we think about this last name, Iscariot, is that it actually is a reference to him being part of a political party. That Judas was most likely one of these disciples that was expecting Messiah to be a political revolutionary who was going to lead this army of Jews that were going to overthrow the Roman government and reestablish Israel as the one true sovereign nation. And you wonder as they're coming to this table and he's witnessed all of these things that he's seen Jesus do out in the world, and he sat in the same room with Jesus and allowed Jesus to wash his feet, if there's not some sort of fear within him that this is not the Messiah that he anticipated, and if he stops listening to the voice of God in that moment and begins to listen to the voice of the accuser, of the Satan, perhaps it's a mix of pride and fear and a lack of whatever it is that Judas feels like he needs to get from Jesus that leads to his deception. And it's so powerful in this passage that we don't often see the emotions of Jesus so much on display, but it says that he was troubled in spirit when he testified that one of them was going to betray him. But he lets it happen. Can you imagine being Jesus and you've just washed the feet of Judas knowing he is the one who's going to betray you? And is this not how Jesus treats you and I? That we're so lost. We're so deceived. We have listened to the voice of the accuser. We've listened to all of these other stories in the culture around us that have said, you need to be afraid. There's not enough to go around. You deserve more than what God is offering you. And we too have reached out and snatched the fruit off the tree. We've reached out and snatched something from Jesus. And yet he strips himself naked and he kneels in front of us to wash our feet. He knows that we're going to betray him. He knows that we've been deceived. And yet he loves us until the very end. Jesus takes our betrayals when we're too afraid, when we're too prideful to incline to him. This is what gets me so much about this story. I believe the only difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter stuck around until the resurrection. I think that's the only difference between these two men. Because what happens later on in the week, Peter himself betrays Jesus not once but three times. And I wonder what would have happened in Judas's story if he hadn't committed suicide, if he hadn't felt that overwhelming sense of guilt that led him to do what he did. I wonder if he would have had a moment just like Peter on the shore of the lake when Jesus forgives Peter three times for the three times that he betrayed him and restores him into relationship with God and then builds a church upon him. The only difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas didn't stick around for the end of the story. The only difference between you and Judas is that you have permission to stick around until the end of the story. That's it. You and I are capable of that same betrayal and we do it every day because we're afraid, because we're prideful, because we've allowed these other stories to determine who we think that we are. And I wonder in this narrative about Judas, if, Jesus, or if John is not giving us the counter-narrative in his own story. We've mentioned several times with interpreting this gospel that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Or in other translations, the beloved disciple. And I don't believe that this is, a, this is a prideful thing that he takes upon himself. But I think he refers to himself in this way because he's inviting you and I to recognize that we are to stand in his place in the story. That's where John is inviting you and I to stand. And I think he gives us little glimpse into his own heart, into his own story that helps give us the counter-narrative to living out the same story as Judas. It says, I'm going to read it again, that one of, the, that one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, Ask him which one he leans, leaning back against Jesus. He asked him, Lord, who is it? I believe that you and I, as the beloved disciples, are called to incline our heads on the breast of our Lord. In Celtic Christianity, all of these ancient fathers and mothers would talk about how John is the seed of their church. That they see in John, he who inclines his head against the breast of the Lord is the invitation to all of us. That John... When he listened to the heartbeat of Jesus, listened to the heartbeat of God himself. And that's the invitation to intimacy that you and I have this week. Is are we willing to incline our ear to lay our head upon the breast of Jesus and to listen for the heartbeat of God? To lean against the heart of Jesus is to receive from him the gift of eternal life. But that requires that you and I let go of fear. That we let go of betrayal. That we let go of deceit. That we stop listening to all of these other stories around us. That we learn to rest into the arms of Jesus. To allow his story to be the one that grounds us. To allow his story to be the one that strengthens us. To allow his story to be the one that heals our past but also draws us into this future paradise with god and this brings us to the table that on that night that jesus was betrayed he was celebrating the passover meal with his disciples on the night he washed peter's feet even though he was prideful on the night that he washed judas's feet even though he knew he was going to betray him He still chose to break bread with them, to be in communion with them. And I think this is so powerful as you and I begin to come to the table. And I'm going to invite those who are administering the elements to go to their positions. Just like in the Garden of Eden, we're not meant to reach out and snatch communion off the table of our Lord. We're not called to take something because we think that we're owed it to snatch off of God's table because we're afraid there's not enough to go around. But we actually receive from the table of God with open hands. We receive it as a gift. I was at a conference last weekend and there was you know, over 500 people at this conference and Christians from all walks of life and so much different doctrine and beliefs and right practices and there could have been any number of debates that could have erupted in that room. But it was when, at the very end of the conference, we were led to the table. That we were invited to come with our hands open like this to freely receive what God has so freely given to us. That all of our beliefs and our practices, all of our betrayals, all of our woundings, all of that was put to the side. And we were welcomed to that table as the beloved of Jesus, to receive from him that which he freely offers. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to step into that beautiful imagery of coming, not to take from God's table, but to receive freely what it is that He so delightfully gives us. And when you come forward to take the elements, you come open-handed, and someone's going to place a piece of bread in your hand that represents the body of Jesus broken open for you. And then I invite you to take that bread and to dip it into the juice, which which represents the blood of Christ shed for you. And I want you to look your brothers and sisters that are serving you in the eyes. I want you to look into their eyes and I want you to imagine Jesus himself saying, this is my body, this is my blood. I give this to you freely. There is nothing that you lack in this moment. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. And So we're going to recite this liturgy together, and we're going to come to the table together as the children of God. We have let fear get the best of us. We've let ourselves be deceived. We have betrayed Jesus in thought, word, and deed. And He will love us until the very end. Let's bow our heads. Almighty God, most dear Son who went not up to joy, but first He suffered pain and entered not into glory before He was crucified, mercifully grant that we walking in the way of the cross may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's come to the table together.